So we're reading from Luke 19, starting at verse 7. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed as king, and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minus. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your miner has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your miner has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your miner. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his miner away from him and give it to the one who has 10 miners. Sir, they said, he already has 10. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. This is God's word. My name is Phil. I'm the associate minister here. Let's pray for God's help. Father God, please, would you open our ears to understand the meaning of this story? Open our hearts to respond in faith. Amen. Now we're at the end of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. As Luke has recorded it, 9.51, he tells us that uh, Jesus set out resolutely for Jerusalem. From Galilee in the north, he heads south, leading the disciples. And as the disciples follow him physically on the road, Jesus has been teaching them how to follow him spiritually, how to enter into the kingdom of God, and how to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. 
And we've arrived in Jericho, um, almost as far south as Jerusalem, just 18 miles from his destination. And Jesus has just saved, as we heard at the, at the beginning of the reading, uh, a, a tax collector named Zacchaeus. And as all the people are gathered round to see this, Jesus takes the opportunity to teach them a vital lesson before he makes the final leg of the journey to Jerusalem. So chapter 19, verse 11. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Now, Jesus has taught the disciples again and again and again. Luke records three times he's taught them, when I go to Jerusalem, it is not to be crowned in glory, but to be rejected and killed in shame. But each time they just don't get it. Uh, We heard last week, 1834, the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them. They God now. They wanted the full blessings of the kingdom in this life. And if you're anything like me, then if you're honest, you probably feel the same. You know, we, we want King Jesus to sort things out now. We want the, the health and, and the delight uh, and the freedom which will be ours in the eternal kingdom. But actually, we'd rather have them today if that's all right. Uh, when we've suffered terrible wrongs and no one has believed us. We want justice now. We want Jesus to vindicate us in this life. When life has been marred by depressing, draining, long-term health struggles, we want to be healed now so we can get on with enjoying life. When life has been just disappointingly different from how we imagined and dreamed. Well, we want the fulfillment that Jesus promises now already. And when, when life has been something of a losing battle with personal sin and, uh, and weak faith, we want that victory and freedom that Jesus promises now. I mean, who here wants to be one of those people who plods on serving Jesus for years and years and sees very little fruit? No, we want to be the ones who see amazing things happen, who tell our friends and family about Jesus and, and, and an entire church just appears overnight in our living room. We we want to be the people that stories are written about rather than the strugglers. But Jesus tells us that's not the pattern of the kingdom. It was cross, then crown for him. And if we are to be his followers, it is cross first and then crown. And Luke tells us the point of the parable at the outset in chapter 19, verse 11. It is to prepare us for the fact that the kingdom of God will not appear in full until Jesus returns in glory. So this is a parable for any of us who want glory now and struggle a bit with the waiting. And Jesus tells it to encourage us, serve faithfully while you wait, trusting that this is his plan A and his reward will more than make it worthwhile. Okay, let's work through the parable together. Firstly, we'll see, uh, called, we're called to serve until the king returns. 19 verse 12. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. The man of noble birth is Jesus. Noble birth indeed. As to his human nature descended from King David. As to his divine nature, God the Son. <laughs> you don't get more noble than that. 
Uh, Philippians 2 tells us that after Jesus died on the cross and was raised to new life, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what's being described here, him going to receive this throne. Verse 13, so he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 miners. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. 10, not 12. So this is not a specific instruction for the 12 apostles. He's saying this is for all his servants while he's gone. A miner was, uh, was about three to four months wages for a laborer. So it's a hefty wadge of cash that he's entrusting to them. And they're told, put it to work. Well, what does the miner represent? There is a clue, I think, in verse 16, if you look a little bit further down. He says, your miner has earned 10 more. The servant recognizes that ultimately, it's not my efforts that have brought about this great return. It is your miner. It's like in the, in the parable of the sower and the soils, if you remember that. It's the gospel seed that grows and produces the amazing returns. So I think primarily the miner here represents the gospel that's entrusted to us, the message of salvation in Jesus Christ that each of us is given. And it should give us real confidence as we read this parable that as we tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ, there is power in the message not in the messenger. Well, secondarily, I think it does also apply to all the gifts that God entrusts to us to use for his glory and blessing. Everything that God gives us, secondarily. So our time, our money, our natural abilities, the opportunity God gives us. And putting the miner to work, it's, look, all the different ways we might serve the Lord Jesus and spread his kingdom. It covers telling friends and colleagues the truth about Jesus in the gospel leading Bible studies, giving money to gospel work, helping the poor and disadvantaged, taking the gospel to other nations as a missionary, seeking to honor God by working hard and with integrity in our workplace and home, sharing our homes, our time, our holidays with others to help grow disciples, fighting sin. In other words, Jesus gives us a wonderful privilege and blessing in that he calls us and equips us to serve him with the gospel and in many different ways. But then we get this jarring note in verse 14, but his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. It's odd until you recall the context. Once again, Jesus is preparing his followers. What's going to happen when he arrives in Jerusalem? What struck me most this week looking at these verses is the arrogance and the wickedness and the perversity of, these, of the leaders of Israel who are represented here. They're saying to God the Father, the ancient of days, the source of wisdom, the creator of all things, yeah, no, we don't like your choice. You know what? We will do a much better job of choosing who should rule over us than you. So if it's quite all right, yeah, you've had your pick. Now we'll tell you who should be ruling us. Psalm 2 tells us the one enthroned in heaven laughs at the rebellion of the wicked people. The subjects are as powerless as they are perverse. 
And the king is appointed anyway, verse 15. Nothing can stop Jesus being crowned king of the universe, not even death. Called to serve until the king returns, and then called to give account when when the king returns. Now, I hope you don't make the mistake of thinking that the assessment we read about in these verses, as we come into verse 15, is to determine whether they've done enough to earn their place in the kingdom of God. He sent for his servants, verse 15, to whom he'd given the money in order to find out what they'd gained with it. It cannot be the case that this is to see, well, have you done enough to merit a place in God's eternal kingdom? The whole Bible is clear that we are saved by grace in the finished work of Christ, not in the feeble things that we manage to do. I mean, Jesus is telling the story standing next to Zacchaeus, a a wicked, greedy man, and Jesus has just given salvation freely to him, saying, the Son of Man came to seek and to save, not the best, those who work hardest for me, but the lost, the sinners. Entry into the kingdom of God is not morally means tested. We trust in what Jesus has done. It is purely by grace. However, a genuine encounter with Jesus does to us what it did to Zacchaeus. It transforms us. And so there will always be fruit where there is real faith. What we do It reveals whether we trust in Jesus. You and I are stewards of our lives. And one day we will stand before our master and give an account of, what have I done with what's been entrusted to me? What fruit, what legacy have I produced? And here we see three different servants coming before the master. And three different, uh, well, four different groups, actually, but three different rewards. Firstly, the faithful are rewarded. Verse 16. The first one came and said, sir, your miner has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. And you think Bitcoin has done well. This is a thousand percent profit. This is a serious investment. But the gospel will always produce fruit. The fruit of unbelievers coming to join the kingdom of God as they hear about Jesus. The fruit of changed lives like Zacchaeus. It will always produce fruit. And Jesus' reward is that this servant gets to take charge of ten cities. Now, let me have a wild stab in the dark. I suspect that there are very, very few people here this morning whose dream of of what will it look like to enjoy God's paradise involves being lumbered with a whole heap more responsibility. It's, yeah, I, I didn't think so. But that is to forget the nature of God's eternal kingdom and God's ability to give us the precise things which will make our souls soar and our spirits rest. And anyway, we're not meant to get hung up on the detail of the parable. The thing that is stressed is not the nature of the reward. What does it mean to have responsibility for this city? It's the scale that is being stressed compared to the act rewarded. Look at verse 17. Because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of 10 cities. You probably got some, uh, some literature through the mail this week. It may have gone straight into your um, special filing cabinet for free mail, the, uh, the bin. The, it's the mayoral elections, and the manifestos came through this week. Obviously, the standout candidate is Count Binface. We're, we're all just can't wait to put a cross for him. Disappointingly, he didn't 
produce a manifesto, but he did make the statement uh, when asked why people should vote for him, I am the intergalactic space warrior who stood against Theresa May in 2017 and went viral in a non-COVID way. Uh, but those who did provide a statement, actually, they're all the same format when you read through. Here's what I'm going to do, and here are my qualifications that mean you should give me your vote. I'm qualified to, to take on the responsibility of London. None of them wrote. I successfully looked after the class hamster during the Easter holidays in year four, which demonstrates I am up to managing a city of nine million people with a budget of 5.6 billion pounds. Yeah, clearly not. But that is what Jesus is saying here. You've been trustworthy in a tiny little matter. Have this unimaginable reward. The, the rewards are just wildly, ridiculously, outrageously out of all proportion to the achievements that are being rewarded. But that's just what God is like. He's not the kind of God who sticks to the budget when it comes to buying a present. He's just super abundantly, lovingly generous and compassionate. But it's not just the cities that reward God's people. The words that Jesus will speak will make all our sacrifice and service worthwhile. Well done, my good servant. I was discussing um, the death of someone I knew recently. Uh, they've been very, very capable, but they've never achieved much by way of recognition or success in this life. And uh, the person wrote to me, he was a good man and a faithful disciple of Christ. Who could ever covet any other honor who hears the welcome from his master as he undoubtedly will? Well done, good servant. Do you know how good that's going to be? It's not so much the words themselves as who's going to speak them to you. Perhaps take time to read one of the gospels again. Remind yourself who Jesus is, who exactly it is is going to look you in the eye and say in a voice like the sound of rushing waters as he smiles, well done, my good servant. The second uh, servant is described much, much more briefly, verse 18. The second came and said, sir, your miner has earned five more. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. What's the point of the second servant? Why does Jesus tell us about him? Well, I think if we only had the first and the third servants, those of us who are, if we're honest, pretty average, uh, who don't feel like our lives are massively fruitful, who don't feel like our miner is producing any great returns, I think we would fear that we're a lot more like the third servant than the first. The point of this second servant is to encourage us, God's faithful plodders will be richly rewarded. I find those wonderful verses. The faithful are rewarded. Secondly, the faithless are revealed. The tone changes pretty abruptly in verse 20. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here's your miner. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. He has done nothing, nothing at all, because he's afraid of his hard, demanding master. 
Now, the first thing to say is that his statement is entirely unfair. I mean, we are standing at this moment on Zacchaeus's porch. Jesus has uh, arrived in Jericho and compassionately healed a beggar who was utterly despised by the crowd and saved and forgiven a traitorous, greedy tax collector. And in the parable, we've just heard the master has rewarded two servants in ways that we would say are extravagant to the point of bordering on utter recklessness. Like the older brother in Luke 15, the servant's words reveal he simply does not know the master at all. He doesn't know Jesus at all. But not only are his words unfair, they're also untrue, as the master reveals. Verse 22, his master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so when I came back, I could have it collected with interest? If he really had thought, my master's a very hard man, he'll take profit where he shouldn't find any and he'll blame me for any loss. If he really thought that, if he was really afraid, he'd have stuck it on deposit to protect the money and make sure there was some interest. But he didn't. His words are just empty excuses. We're not to take them at face value. He is lazy, he is wicked, and he is dishonest. And in the end, he loses everything. Verse 24, then he said to those standing by, take his miner away from him and give it to the one who has 10 miners. So they said, he already has 10. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. There will be a radical division at the end. For those who trust in Jesus, there'll be an eternity of ever-increasing delight and peace and joy. For those who reject Jesus, who do not trust in him. They won't just lose some rewards, they will lose everything. He is the only source of forgiveness, of life, of happiness in this universe. To turn away from Jesus is to lose everything forever. It's a sobering warning against selfish, lazy, comfortable living. But much as we're tempted to end there, there is a third group. The rebels, verse 27. The master continues, but those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. <laughs> Gosh, <laughs> why does Jesus ruin a perfectly good parable with a brutal ending like this? It was challenging enough without him saying something like that. And sitting here comfortably on a Sunday morning, we find those very uncomfortable words shocking. But come back to verse 14. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Now, Jesus is using language that would have been familiar to the people. Because when Herod Archelaus went to Rome to be crowned king of Judea by Caesar Augustus following the death of Herod the Great in 4 BC, the Jewish leaders sent a delegation to protest and say, we don't want this man to be king. But while the language Jesus uses in the parable 
describes that. When the reality happens a week after this, when the leaders really do oppose King Jesus, it's not through a formal protest using diplomatic channels. They condemn him on false charges. They spit in his face. They beat him. They flog him. They torture him to death on a cross and mock him to his face while he hangs there in agony. And they did it to their rightful king, to the only righteous man who has ever lived. They did that to the one who is truth, compassion, love, beauty, goodness, wisdom in human flesh. The people who do that to him where they have to be destroyed. And so do all who side with them. What do we do with this parable? Well, um, we know Jesus has conquered sin and death and risen triumphantly to new life. We know that having been made king, he will return and will make everything right in this world. We know it's all a matter of when, not if. But the waiting is hard. And we do get discouraged and disillusioned and, and ground down. And so Jesus told us this parable to remind us we are privileged to serve a great king. And one day when he returns, we're promised a great reward. So live for him now. I don't know if you saw, the, the Telegraph reported that Prince Philip specifically requested, when he planned his funeral, uh, he specifically requested no eulogy because he wanted, he said, the service to glorify God and not him. An amazing thing to say. Well, Jesus' words here encourage us not just to make our funerals about glorifying God rather than me, but to make that, to make that the theme of our lives you have one life to live. So live it in a way which will look wise in the eyes of Jesus on that final day. Are you, am I, living sacrificially as a steward of my time, my skills, my monies, my opportunities, the gospel? Does it cost me? Are my greatest efforts, this asks me, devoted to, to my comforts or his kingdom? It's worth reading Christian biographies, um, especially perhaps as you start to think about uh, summer holidays, if they ever happen. Read Christian biographies because they inspire us and they help to raise the bar on what it might look like to live life for Jesus. Develop two accountable, honest relationships in small groups and with friends where we challenge one another about our lives, as we all need from time to time, and where we encourage one another in this, as we also all need a lot of the time. But our motivation to serve, to live for Jesus is this. One day, the king of the universe is going to return. And he will give you a reward so enormous that it will make absolutely no sense to anyone except to him. And on that day, all the ways we've served and all the things we've sacrificed for King Jesus will translate into a beaming smile 
on the face of the king of the universe. And he will shout with a joy that lights up the cosmos. Well done, my good servant. And everything, everything will be worthwhile. What better motivation could there be? Let's pray. Our Father God, we, we do struggle with the waiting in different ways, all of us. We do long for the glory, but we pray that we would use this life you have entrusted to us. We would invest our miners well, confident that we will receive your reward and that you will speak those wonderful words of blessing and commendation to us. Help us to live for that, to long for that, to serve you wholeheartedly. Amen.